What is going on, guys? This is Brendan Burns, and welcome to The Brendan Burns Show. Join me as I interview, dissect, and share the stories of high performers who have created the life that they deserve on their terms. I sit down with speakers, professional athletes, and successful entrepreneurs from all over the world who have chosen to live a life of fulfillment and joy over status and money. In each episode, I share actionable strategies that you can implement in your life, plus inspiration along the way. So come join me for this episode of The Brendan Burns Show. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to another episode of The Brendan Burns Show. Joining us today is Mark Hirschberg, the author of The Career Toolkit, Essential Skills for Success That No One Taught You. From tracking criminals and terrorists on the dark web to creating marketplaces and new authentication systems, Mark has spent his career launching and developing new ventures at startups and Fortune 500s and in academia. Mark helped to start the Undergraduate Practice Opportunities Program, dubbed MIT's Career Success Accelerator, where he teaches annually. At MIT, he received a BS in physics, a BS in electrical engineering and computer science, and a master's in engineering and electrical engineering and computer science focusing on cryptography. At Harvard Business School, Mark helped create a platform used to teach finance at prominent business schools. He also works with many nonprofits, including Techie Youth and Plan a Million Corals. He was one of the top-ranked ballroom dancers in the country and now lives in New York City, where he is known for his annual Halloween party, as well as diverse cufflink collection. Mark, welcome to the show. Thank you for having me. It's a pleasure to be here. My pleasure. So I'm holding your book, The Career Toolkit, in my hand right now. Take me back in time, all the way back, to your upbringing. I'm curious what that was like, where that was, and what your parents did for their careers. My parents, I, I think about them as the classic Jewish parents. My dad was a doctor. My mom was a teacher, although she uh, stopped her teaching career to raise my brother and I. And so grew up in a kind of traditional upper middle class Jewish suburban household. Uh, they very much emphasized education. They were very supportive of the paths that my brother and I took. And so I was very lucky to have a good family environment. But I'll note, uh, so I grew up as a child in the 80s. I was very much, think, 80s stereotypical nerd. I love chess. I love math. I love science. I went to chess camp a couple summers. I would, on my weekends, go to science talks with my father. And so very much I was in the quantitative skills, very classic, extreme nerd, and didn't really think about or focus on any of these skills, even my own kind of personal social skills, right? The, the skills that we learn as children as we grow up, play with others and learn how to interact with others. That was honestly, I was somewhat um, limited in my development in that area. Got it. And, and where geographically did you grow up? I grew up outside of New York City and outside of Chicago. Like Long Island, Westchester? I was briefly in Westchester and then central New Jersey. And in Chicago, I was on the North Shore of Chicago. Got it. What kind of uh, doctor was your father? My dad was a general practitioner, although he very quickly moved into administration. And so as far back as I can remember, he was chief of medicine at different hospitals. And 
one thing I probably did get from my father, he, you know, we think about his generation, people weren't as proactive in managing their careers. He was very much looking for new opportunities. And one of the reasons we moved a bit is because he would go out and look for a hospital where he could, even though the title might have been the same, uh, still chief of medicine, but he would find new opportunities and whether it was better compensation or just being able to build something out and kind of grow the hospital in some way was always challenging. So he is very proactive in thinking about his career. I was going to use the word proactive, and I'm curious if that either rubbed off on you in your career and or in this book, being intentional about your career and these steps. And is that something that kind of passed through from him that you saw at that age? I think so, but not directly. It wasn't in a sense of my dad sat me down and said, hey, son, here's how I think about your career. And in fact, when I first graduated, I wasn't focused or proactive. I didn't quite know what I wanted to do. I knew, so coming out of MIT in the 90s, I had a lot of options. We had classic tech, so that was Microsoft, uh, Yahoo, I think had, had started by this point, but kind of like big old school tech. We had Wall Street, we had consulting companies. All of them were trying to hire MIT folks. I looked, I said, none of these really kind of fit. And so I spent a year as a researcher at MIT as on research staff. And that was kind of just, well, let me bide my time till I figure out what I want to do. And I wound up at a tech startup, not because that's what I wanted to do at the time. It was just, I eliminated all the other options. And I probably would have sat there for many years. Just, it was a, a nice job. I liked how it was going, like my manager, like my teammates. Until one day, my boss came to me and said, so listen, this might come as a surprise to you, or maybe not, but uh, this is my last day here. I'm leaving to go start a new company and I'm taking these guys from our team with me. I'd like for you to come along and join us. And then the other co-founders who weren't leaving sat me down and said, well, I'm sure you know, John's leaving. He's taking some folks. He's probably asked you. We want to let you know, we'd love for you to stay. We think you have a future here. We think you're valuable. And all of a sudden I had a decision to make. And I thought, how, how do I figure this out? I didn't have a framework. I didn't know how to pick which job was right for me. And that's when I first started to really think about my career. I had some idea where I wanted to go, but wasn't proactive. As at this point, I said, well, if I'm going to make a decision, I need to be conscious in how I do it. And so I sat down, started to think about it, then realized there were more than two options. This was the dot-com era. There were lots of companies that would hire someone like me. But I defined what I was looking for and then at that point uh, knew how to evaluate my options and could find the path forward that I wanted. So it was at that point that I kind of woke up and started being more proactive in the jobs I sought and my long-term career plans. Why do you think that people are not more proactive and intentional about what they do, given that what we do professionally, generally, unless you are um, you've exited a company or you've retired young. Typically for the average person, we spend more time working in our jobs than anything else. And I, I find it kind of wild that people aren't more intentional about creating and cultivating a dream career. What do you think gets in the way of that for people? Yeah, and I've, I've often made that point of a good portion of our life, right? A little under 50% of our waking life 
for you know a good portion of our lifetime is spent at work. We should really be conscious of where we're working and what we're getting out of it. And you know we don't teach people this uh, for a number of reasons. Part of it, this is why the subtitle of the book, Essential Skills for Success That No One Taught You, because we have all these skills that aren't taught in schools. And so people aren't conscious of it because we're not taught to think that way, right? We don't ever have someone sit us down and say, you know, you should think about your career and think about where you want to go and think about what job is right for you. What we generally get is advice on how to find your first job out of college. And we just kind of hope people are going to learn this stuff. But if you think about it, a lot of the, a lot of the skills we learn outside of the classroom, we learn from say our parents, right? We learn how to interact with others, whether it's don't hit other people because when you're four, you do so. And then your parents say, this is bad. Go, okay, I won't hit someone else. Or just you know how to, when you have someone coming over to your house, you see how your parents treat guests and you learn, okay, this is what I do. Whether it's offer them something to drink or be nice, take their coats, whatever, little things, or just how you engage with them, how you make sure everyone's having a good time when they're at your place. We learn by watching, but we're not watching our parents in their careers. Dad doesn't come home and say, hey, you know, I had a really rough day at the office and I think I might lose my job and here's why. Mom doesn't come home and say, you know, I'm trying to decide between a couple jobs and let me explain to you, my nine-year-old kids, here's how I'm choosing between them. They don't have these conversations, yeah. so we don't learn them and we're certainly not observing them. And we're not getting in school, we're not getting at home. So it's really hard to learn this. Yeah, you know, one of the things you said that also stood out to me is I remember my time well at Cornell as an undergrad student and the emphasis that we all put on our first job out of college and kind of this obsession for me, at least, I, I really wanted to be an investment banker and I wanted to get the most front office version of that, the sexiest, highest profile, best firm job I could. And I didn't get that coming out of college, uh, largely because I graduated in 2009 and there was the financial crisis at the time. Um, I repositioned, I went to graduate school, I was able to get that job at a large bank doing M&A investment banking. But not that long after that, I realized I was much more interested in investing and hedge funds. And so I, I repositioned out of that. And obviously being at a, a more well-known bank can help you make that switch a little bit more easily. But it was like there was this obsession with getting, the, getting it right perfectly right out of college and a total lack of focus or understanding on long-term career development. That, that, that's just something that I remember from college. It is consistent across universities, across students, and it is a huge failure on the part of education, both in that they don't set up the students and then future alums to think about their career, but also because it takes such a narrow view. And I have seen time and again, we're in my third recession. I saw the dot-com, I saw the great recession and now COVID. And I unfortunately see so many college seniors who say, okay, this is what I want to do. I want to go to Wall Street, but oh, 2009, can't get that job. And certainly there's, there's some pressure. You can't hold out for that type of job in a year like 2009. You have to say, all right, let me find something more realistic. But then we give them no support to, okay, you can't get your dream job today or even your dream industry, 
but how do you create a path to get back there? Because we know three, four years down the road, the economy is going to turn. So how do we help you set yourself up to get back onto the path that you want? And we get zero support for that as well. And too many students make these short-sighted decisions about, well, here's a job because I need a job today. And there's certainly pressure. You might have financial obligations, you might have student debt, but they focus on this and then they put themselves down the wrong path for their future. And that is unfortunate. It's a disservice that colleges do to their students. Yep, well said. So chapter nine of your book, The Career Toolkit, is negotiation. And you have a quote here that I like from John F. Kennedy, let us never negotiate out of fear, but let us never fear to negotiate. Why did you put this chapter in the book and how would you define negotiation? Negotiation is valuable for two reasons. First, that skill, like all the skills in the book, come from feedback from corporations. They have been telling universities, not just MIT, but other universities, these are the skills we want to see in our employees, not just new college grads, but all employees. Leadership, communications, networking, teamwork, negotiations. We want to see these skills, but they're not being taught. We're not getting it. And so that's why negotiation along with these other skills are listed and explained in the book. Now, negotiation itself is important to us as individuals for a couple of reasons. And negotiation is this great illustration. Imagine the following situation. You're 25 years old, you get a job offer, and they offer you $70,000. Say, okay, well, let me try and negotiate this. So you go back, you negotiate, you negotiate $1,000 more, $71,000. This is not a huge stretch. This is not something only a master negotiator can do. This is a pretty simple lift. So you get $1,000 more. If you do nothing else in your career, if you sit in this job for the next 40 years until you retire, you've just gotten yourself $40,000 more, right? That's massive, $40,000 for one tiny negotiation. But of course we know it's not going to be like that. It's not one job for life. It's not just one negotiation. You're gonna have multiple jobs, multiple promotion or raise opportunities. And if you learn to negotiate, not to be the world's best negotiator, but just to be a little better at negotiations, to go from 70 to 71,000, maybe later learn 70 to 72,000, it's, it's really the same skill, but just to, to illustrate, just do a little better, you're gonna be earning tens of thousands of dollars, even hundreds of thousands of dollars more in your career. Isn't that worth investing 20 hours, reading a few books, taking an online course, just learning a little more if it's gonna generate literally five or six figures for you? Now, I use negotiations as an example because this is the most direct. We can see, oh, I literally got $1,000 more. But in fact, what I've described here applies to all of our skills. If you could do 1% better in your leadership, 2% better in your ability to communicate, it's not going to immediately give you, oh, here's $1,000 more because you communicated well, but it's going to help us succeed, help us be more effective, help us achieve more, go further in our careers for which we will be compensated. All of these skills, just like negotiation, although not so directly linear, will yield massive returns on our investment. So negotiation is the first and most obvious one. Now to the, the second question you asked, how do we think about negotiations? 
it's that most people think of it as this example of a job of, okay, I'm going to sit across the table from you and we're going to negotiate and I'm going to try to get more. And that might mean you get less. And that is one type of negotiation. But if you understand what negotiation is really about, you're going to realize it's not something you do once every three years when you get a new job or maybe buy or sell a house, but it's something you're going to be doing on a monthly, maybe even weekly basis. Some of us do this with customers or suppliers. You might do this with partners, but you'll even do it internally. You'll do it with your coworkers when you're working on a project and trying to figure out, okay, who's going to work on this when you're trying to get resources for another department. These are all negotiations. And once you develop the negotiation skills, once you get this mindset that comes from it, you recognize opportunities to negotiate all around you, which A, lets you continue to develop these skills, and B, gives you opportunities to employ these skills to lead to more successful outcomes for you and your organization. Got it. I, I like that example a lot with the 1000 per year accruing and doesn't even incorporate compound interest or investment, what you would get investing that capital too. So that's a great example. I'm curious, what has been the biggest either learning experience or negotiation mistake that you've personally made in your life that you've learned from? I would say one of the earliest was thinking that, uh, thinking that something would happen that we discussed but didn't. Okay, so let me be more specific. In one of my first jobs, uh, they gave me an offer and I negotiated a, a little bit of a raise and he said, okay, well, look, uh, you know, I'm open to doing a salary review in six months. I thought, okay, yeah, great, that sounds fair. And we discussed it. And one thing I've learned, I have a very good memory. So I, of course, remember this. And six months came and went and nothing happened. And I should have spoken up. Back then, I was not good at speaking up. And I don't believe this manager intentionally misled me or was trying to get out of it. I, he's, a, he's a good person. I think he honestly forgot. And so one of the things I learned, there are things that can go into a contract, and there are things that can't. Right? This is whether it's for jobs or any agreements. Uh, famously, when Ray Kroc bought out the McDonald brothers, he said, so listen, I can give you this cash, but the equity piece, look, my, my investors aren't going to let me put that in writing, but let's do a handshake deal, right? And that's kind of what my boss and I had. It's not, we shook hands. He said, look, you know, yeah, I'll, I'll do this, but it was extra contract, right? It was outside the contract. Right. And so when it came back to it, now in my case, I think he legitimately forgot. And probably if I had spoken up, he would have said, oh yes, sorry, let's, let's address it. Uh, in the case of Ray Kroc, famously, he said, I don't know what you're talking about. And it has been a you know, point of contention ever since between the McDonald's family and, uh, and Ray Kroc. So when you have things that are going to be outside of the contract, try to find ways to enhance your position. So what I teach people now is if I was in that position again, I would say, okay, look, I get, you, know, you can't put this in the contract. So I'm going to send an email saying, hey, thanks, really like the offer, you know, I'm accepting, here it is. And as discussed, you know, ABC, as discussed, in six months, we're going to meet about this. So if he forgets, right, certainly if he tries to get out of it, but more likely if he, if he forgets, or if he leaves the company and a new person shows up, 
I have something in writing. It's not a legally binding contract, but something showing, look, here's what's been discussed because handshake deals and what's out in the ether doesn't have as much credence as even a simple email. Well said. What advice do you have for people at a high level on negotiation in the book? What do you talk about specifically that people can do? It's, we, I understand what negotiation is now. We see the value. We see the importance. What are the biggest either mistakes people on average make with negotiating or the biggest advice, things that you would encourage people to start doing? The number one mistake is lack of preparation. So ask yourself, if you were going to give a talk, you're going to a conference or you're going to present at your company's event, would you just say, okay, well, I'm supposed to talk about this. I guess I'll stand up and see how it goes, right? You're going to prepare. You might prepare slides. You might rehearse your talk a bit. Even if you don't formally do it, if you say, well, I'm an experienced public speaker, you might say, well, let me just, I'm going to spend a couple minutes just think through what are the points I'm going to emphasize here right? What's my conclusion? Do I have any good examples I can bring in? You're going to do some preparation. If you are playing sports, you don't just show up onto the field and say, all right, let's, let's play some football, right? You probably practiced at some point. In fact, even for our company softball league, you might even practice. So isn't it strange that we'll practice more for, you know, our social softball league than we will for our negotiations? Good negotiators know you prepare. If you look at, say, these professional sports teams, to continue the analogy, we watch them on the field. We're going to watch them play on the Super Bowl uh, this Sunday, right before uh, or right after the recording we're doing. But in fact, that time on the field, the couple hours there, that's such a small part of their actual job. Much of their job is during the week they spend training, right? Whether it's working out to build muscles or running drills or practicing or even looking at what are the plays the other team is going to run and how are we going to counter that? It's that preparation. And we as negotiators need to do the same. That at the table is equivalent to being on the field. So you want to prepare before you walk into that negotiation room. You want to do some preparation. You want to think about what are you trying to achieve? What are your goals? What are your strengths? What are your weaknesses? What can you offer? What might they offer? What are they looking for? What might be acceptable to them? What's valuable to you? What's valuable to them? To them? What's less valuable to both? And when you have this preparation, how am I going to convince them to take my deal? What's going to make this appealing? When you think about all this and prepare, and it doesn't have to be you know, 40 hours of preparation. It can be as little as 30 minutes, but even taking a little time to prepare, and obviously for bigger negotiations, put more time into it, you are so much more effective than walking in cold. Yeah, I like that. You, you also have a section in your book on unethical negotiating. I'm curious if you could talk a little bit about that. There's a number of techniques we see, and I, I illustrate a couple in the book. Uh, a very common one is kind of browbeating, or to use a poker analogy, you know, playing the person, not playing the pot, playing the hand. So you can imagine being in negotiations and the other person across the table from you, they are screaming, they are pounding the table, they are insulting you, they are yelling at you, threatening you, not, not with bodily harm, but saying, you know, this is going to ruin your career if you don't do this deal, 
right? And, and doing all these things to, in some sense, intimidate you. And really that has nothing to do with the negotiation at large, right? They are working on you, you personally, your, your ego, your self-esteem. They are negotiating against you as a person and not talking about, hey, how do we get positions to overlap so we can get a negotiation we both want? They just hope they can intimidate you and browbeat you. And when this happens, good negotiators either know, okay, you know, scream at me all you want, but it doesn't matter. It's like lawyers in court, you know, someone can, can rant and scream, but at the end, either they have, you know, case law supporting their argument or they don't. And that's really all the judge is going to, to look at. So good negotiators know to, to ignore that. Or if you're not as experienced, you can also say, look, you know, I'm happy to have this conversation with you, but right now you seem a little agitated. Why don't we take a break and come back? Um, even you can say, look, I'm just not going to negotiate with you if you're going to behave this way. This is just inappropriate. So there, there are different strategies we yeah. can use, but that's one example of how people might try to, to intimidate or do things that are really outside of what we would want in negotiation. Yeah. Yeah. I, I, I like that how you laid that out. I remember negotiating one time um, as, as a coach for my coaching company with an organization that we're providing services to. And the CEO was on a call with us and he was trying to evaluate the value of uh, what we had provided to them and the ROI that we delivered because we were doing some sales training for their employees. And he was getting very heated as you were talking about and, but not even with us, with another member of his own team who was on the call with us. And so we basically took the position, our company of like, why don't we hop back on the phone when we've all cooled our heads and it makes more sense and we have more data in front of us to make a better decision. And I like what you say about taking the emotions out of it and never being that person who's going to threat or intimidate or be emotional. And equally important, if that's happening to you, to know how to handle that and not kind of buy into that and, and allow someone to sort of persuade you or, or impact the negotiation based on them doing that to you. Right, and I, I wanna note a subtle point because threats in of themselves aren't necessarily wrong, right? If we're trying to do a deal, you know, I might threaten you in the sense of, look, if you don't do this, just know I know the other two options you're likely to go to, you know, I've, I've got deals with them, so they're not going to work with you. So you have very few options if you don't work with me. Now, that's a threat, but that's a threat about positions, right? I'm threatening, hey, you're going you're gonna to be in a weaker position if you don't do this deal. That's different than if I am swearing at you and belittling you as a person right. and trying to threaten you like, oh, you know, you're not a real man if you don't do the deal, <laughs> right? That's a very different type of threat. So I want to distinguish, it really comes down to, is it about the person across the table or is it about positions? The latter is fine and we can, we can use some leverage and, and some, some even threats there when appropriate, but it's about what we're negotiating and not about the individuals. I absolutely see that distinction. And just in the past week, I was having a conversation with someone who was interested in uh, one of our coaching programs. And I said to her, which was kind of like an honest threat or however you would describe, call it of, look, if you don't enroll with this program, 
in the next week or two, there's a good chance that you won't have access to it because we are legitimately have a waiting list that we're starting to create and you'll be able to receive coaching from someone else from my team or in a group setting. But if you want access to me, if you want access to one-on-one, you're going to have to make a decision within the next week or two. And that to me was like uh, just an honest, Hey, if you want it, hop in now, cause it might not be around. And, and so, you know, I, I think that's kind of aligned with the differentiation you were pointing out. Right. That approach that's known as weakening a BATNA. Now BATNA is a term B-A-T-N-A yeah. best alternative to negotiate agreement. Yeah. That is what happens to you, to me, if we don't reach this agreement, what's the alternative? So in this case, her alternative, if she didn't do this agreement today, her alternative, well, there's other coaching, but it's not going to be with you. It's going to be with someone else. So she's welcome to choose that. But as you pointed out, you said, look, you are better off if you do this. If you don't, it, it gets not as good for you. Right. And that's, you know, we threat might have been even too strong a word, a word, but that's kind of where we came from in the example. But yeah. you are you're weakening someone's batna. You are saying, you know, do this because scarcity is a common version. Like you act now because this deal goes away or we're gonna sell out. Or, you know, if you don't take this deal, here are your remaining options and let me explain why they're not going to be as good for you. So that's uh so I mean threat was the, the term I first used, but it's really about weakening someone else's batna. Yeah. Yeah. Well said. So one of the things that the book covers is the build, how to build a high value network. And why don't we start with your personal story of how you were able to build your network, or maybe when did you realize the value of building a network and how did you first kind of learn that lesson and then go about it for yourself? I learned it later than I should have. I can think of all sorts of examples uh, where I was introduced to people. In one case, right as I finished my my graduate thesis, uh, my advisor walked me down the hall to this guy named Tim Brenner's League. And now the World Wide Web was already out and MIT was housing uh, the World Wide Web Consortium. So Tim Brenner's League was there. And my thesis advisor walked me over and said, oh, Tim, this is my student, Mark. He just did this really interesting thesis on online voting. You know, here, here's what it is. You should take a look. And not knowing any better, I'm like, oh, okay. Hey, nice to meet you. And we chatted for two minutes. And that was it. I never saw him again. And I never reached out. I'm sure he had lots of other things to do. But boom, I was introduced to a very important person, right? one of the architects of the modern world, and I just had no ability to follow up and lost the opportunity to build a relationship. So I, I blew lots of opportunities, but the good news is opportunities are always around the corner. And one of the reasons I blew that opportunity, it's funny, we have all heard, well, networking is so important. You have to build a strong network. Everyone keeps telling this to us, but has anyone actually taught us how to do it? Think back through all your education. Everyone tells you this, but no one actually teaches this to you, which is another massive failing of our educational system. So I, I thankfully at some point figured out, hey, maybe I should actually do something about this. And I began to work on building my network. And so it's really about going out and building relationships with people. The number one mistake I see is people go around 
and they try to collect business cards, right? We, we have that image of the person working the room and they come back after 30 minutes. And go, yeah, I just got 15 business cards or the modern version. Oh, I just add 20 people on LinkedIn. Now, of course, adding someone on LinkedIn and saying this person is in your network, that's like swiping right on someone on Tinder and saying this person is now your significant other. <laughs> it's totally meaningless. Yeah. But of course, we know if I'm on Tinder and I swipe right, okay, great. We both swipe right. That's the first step, but there's a lot more to go. What do we do next? Well, now we build that relationship. Now, for, for that type of relationship, it's going on dates. But for a professional relationship, okay, we both connect on LinkedIn, but now we have to build that relationship. It might not be dates, but it is about connecting to the person, getting to know the person. It might be going out meeting for coffee or drinks after work, obviously with a different goal and, and connotation, but it is that relationship building. And this is the key to networking. It's not the number of connections, not the number of business cards. It is the number of relationships you have because a network of someone, a network of people who won't return your calls is of no value. And so you wanna foster this relationship. Now, as we're recording this, we're in the middle of COVID and a common question I get is, well, what can we do while we're all stuck at home? Now, certainly COVID is horrible. We all wish it didn't happen, but there are some silver linings. We can see some half full glasses even as many glasses are empty. So in terms of networking, okay, we're not going out to events, meeting people in person, but as we just said, that initial meeting, that's step one. There's a lot more to it. There's a relationship building piece and that we can still do. And in fact, COVID makes some of that a little easier. So one thing we can do, we all used to have commutes. We all used to spend time getting into the office. So you've got that time back. Imagine if you said, you know, instead of my 8.30 to 9 a.m. commute, I'm going to use one day a week, take that 30 minutes, I'm going to reach out and connect with someone. So you start telling people saying, hey, I am doing virtual coffee Thursday mornings. So I haven't seen you in a while. Let me know if you have a Thursday morning free. Let's just do a virtual coffee and catch up. And so you can use this time to reach out and build your network. Another advantage, we think of networking locally. That's because we generally network person to person. We normally say, well, let's get coffee and it's at that local coffee shop. And if you're on the other coast from me, it's a lot harder for us to find a coffee shop we can both get to. And if we go back to 2019 and we said back then, hey, Brendan, why don't we hop on a video call and do a virtual coffee and catch up? Right? You have said, uh, first, what is Zoom? And you know, why do I wanna do this? I'd yeah. rather go out right, yep. to that local coffee shop. But now that we're, we're virtual, it's easier to reach out to people who are non-local, reach out to people we won't be running into once we're all back outside and build those relationships today. So these are some of the, the silver linings, the glass half full options that we have during this time as we build our networks. Yeah, you know, it's first of all, it's funny when you told that story at MIT because when I was in graduate school, at Cornell, I was, I interned for a semester at the NFL, which is funny because this Sunday is Super Bowl Sunday. And I was sitting there uh, in my office, in my cube, I should say, at the NFL in their legal department. And Paul Tagliabue walked over to me and he said, 
oh, hey, I'm the former commissioner of the NFL. And we started having a conversation. And he kind of made himself available to me. He was just there. We were talking, took an interest in me. And I did absolutely nothing with that contact. And now, you know, the opportunity to be in a room with a current or ex-commissioner of a major sports league, like you said, to build that deep personal relationship, so much value there. So I was just laughing when you told that story because I've had my fair share of those as well. And I really like what you say about kind of the business card example. Um, I remember I was at a, an event one time and there was this guy there and he, he was a, he meant well, he was from an Eastern European country, I believe. And he's very ambitious. And I don't think he had developed all these networking skills yet. And he was just kind of going up to people, telling them his name and then handing them his business card and then walking away, thinking that yep. he had done something good. And it's funny because if you go at it with the right approach, you don't even need a business card. And you can have a thousand business cards and hand them all out. But if you're just kind of handing them out and not building any substantive, deep rapport with people, it's kind of, what's the point to me? Absolutely. And now this will vary a bit by culture. Yeah. In Japan, I don't know if this is still true, but certainly years ago, uh, new hires, people right out of school, they used to get sent out and they just go to these events where you're just supposed to meet people and build relationships. And so it's just kind of random, go and go and meet lots of people. Although even then it wasn't just, let's just hand out cards. It was, okay, let's meet, let's buy each other drinks. But it was just, you know, purely go and meet lots of random people because they will be helpful to you later in your career. But even then it was relationship-based. Yeah. Have you ever thought about the vulnerability that's required of real networking or really showing up? Because... I find that a lot of people are really interested in either growing their business or their career via LinkedIn or social media or an email list, for example. And I'm not knocking those outlets. They can be a great way to get in front of a global or a much wider audience that doesn't yet know you. But I found in personal experience that, like you said, having a smaller number of really solid relationships can open the kimono to opportunities that rarely I would find from a stranger via Facebook or Instagram. And I'm curious if you thought about that at all. I think about it sometimes of it's kind of a way to hide behind a business card or behind a computer screen rather than put yourself out there. Here's one way to think of it. Now I'm going to use money only because it's measurable, but we should never think of our relationships just in monetary terms. This is just for illustrative purposes. Suppose tomorrow you needed to borrow $10,000. Who's going to give it to you? Is it someone you just met yesterday? Is it someone you met at a conference last year or maybe exchanged a few emails with? Someone who's following you on social media? It's likely going to be someone who has known you for a long time. Yeah. Probably a family member, a close friend. Maybe it's a current or former coworker but it's someone with whom you have that deeper relationship. Yeah. Right now, what if you needed to borrow $20? Probably there's a larger number of people who'd be willing to lend you $20, right? So as we develop deeper relationships, they can provide more value. Now, again, I'm using money just for illustrative purposes. We don't think about how much money can I get from this connection. Yeah. But even when I think about 
you know, I know a, a founder of a multi-billion dollar tech company. I know a whole bunch of people who would love to meet him. Lots of salespeople want to sell to him. Lots of people want to partner with him, get his help. And so who am I going to introduce to him? It's not someone who I just met at the conference the other week, but when a good friend of mine, uh, she's another author and she does some business coaching as well. I've known her for years. And when she said, can you introduce me? I said, yes. You know, I know I want to be careful who I introduce this person to, because just like I can't hand out $10,000 to everyone, I can't say to you know, everyone, I can't have this CEO meeting everyone I meet, or I'm going to be wasting his time. I said, I trust her. I know she delivers value. I am willing to open the kimono, as you describe it, to do this introduction. Now, this isn't to say, oh, I, I can, you know, if, I, if someone's not the $10,000 level, I have to just keep working it instead of focusing on others, right? We have, you can think of, of like a pyramid, right? There's, there's a smaller number at the top who are closer and then broader, maybe a, maybe a target's a better analogy. Uh, we have more people out there, but it's not just, you know, everyone's just out there. I have many people. It's the depth of some of the relationships that are going to be delivering value. And that's why you have to focus not just on the number of people, but cultivating those relationships. Yeah. It's, it's so true. I mean, I've, I've built up some really solid relationships from Cornell and, and various networks I have. And those are the people that I can go to and, and really clearly lay out, hey, this is what my company's doing. These are, this is who I'm coaching. I lay it out and I say, you know, who might you know who could benefit from a conversation like this? And they'll say, oh, talk to this person, this person, this, these three people. And, you know, let me go ahead and make an introduction for you. And let me talk to them first. So they really understand who you are and what you're all about. And then when you get on the phone with someone with that context and that trust and that background, it's to me, that's not a sales call. That's a, hey, that's a trust call. That's a, oh yeah, I'm curious what you do, Brendan call. And it's such a, it comes from such a different place. Absolutely. It is the, the trust in the relationship that can now be used almost like currency. Again, analogy, it's not about money, but this concept of that trust can be used to, to be passed along and so that you can benefit from the trust that other people in your network have built. Yeah. So you have a chapter in the book on ethics, which I think is really great and critical to a, to a book that's very holistic like yours. Why did you include that in this book? And I'm curious, sort of the ethical dilemmas that have come up in your career path. You've worked in a lot of different organizations and, and roles. And personally, uh, what was that like for you? Ethics, it's another skill that's been listed by the company saying, oh, we want people who are ethical. But that's not why I included it. Because as much as companies say that, I don't see them walking the walk. Right? I just see them put on the checklist. It's it feels like another corporate initiative where they just give it lip service. And really, I have seen way too much unethical behavior. I think we need to change, not just at the corporate level, a societal level to be more ethical. And so it's something I really wanted to include and emphasize because unfortunately, we don't talk about it. And even though I, I mentioned with networking, they tell us it's important, but don't teach us to do it. But still, we at least hear people talking about networking. It comes up regularly. Everyone wants us to be ethical, but no one even talks about it. And so it, it's something we really have to emphasize. In terms of, 
you know, ethical situations, uh, there are, unfortunately, the most common I have seen have involved harassment. And I do give some guidance in the book uh, with the important caveat, I am not a lawyer, I am not an ethicist. So yeah. you, you better check to make sure what I'm saying you should, you should try is legal in your state. Uh, but I give some advice on when you face such a situation, how to deal with it, how to protect yourself, how to stand up for others to help them when they're facing some of these challenges. So unfortunately that's the most common, but even then uh, we, see, we see so many unfortunate cases. Here's one right from the headlines. Uh, there, was a, there was a bank, an unfortunate, sorry, not the bank, uh, Amazon, just the other day. Amazon got in trouble because they were supposedly taking tips from their delivery people. And so they were fined $61 million by, I think it was a federal trade commission, one of the groups, $61 million. And how did they come up with that number? Well, that is the estimation of what Amazon had taken from the drivers. So they're going to take that money and presumably distribute it back to the drivers. So let's think about this from a kind of game theory standpoint. Amazon says, okay, if we take this money, and you know, I don't think Amazon said, how do we steal from the poor? But someone said, you know, we, yeah, we can probably do this. This is probably legal. And someone said, well, it's going to show loss of profitability and I'm going to get a promotion for it. So yeah, okay, if it's not illegal, yeah, let's give this a try, right? So the upside is, well, let's do this. And if we do it, profitability goes up, revenue goes up. Okay, that's good. Oh, but what if we get it wrong? Well, what the governing agency just said is, well, if you get it wrong, you're back to zero. We're going to take it away from you. You get a little bad PR, but frankly, I don't think anyone's going to say, oh, well, I'm going to stop shopping at Amazon now. So that's not going to hurt them. They didn't pay anything in penalties. They just gave back what they took. Well, this sounds like an incentive system that says, heads you win, tails you don't lose. So why not do this? Right? Why not try this every time? And we see countless examples like this all the time where companies are just incentivized to, yeah, might as well try it. So we have to either as individuals stand up and say, look, I know from a kind of expected value standpoint, this makes sense, but it's just wrong. Or we as members of society need to address this and say, we have to make sure the penalty is severe enough that they are not incentivized to do this. Yeah, there's no, there were no consequences in that matter of if they do something wrong, worst case scenario, they're in the same spot they were if they didn't keep the tips. Right. And I'm sure since you're, you're a former lawyer, you've probably been in many meetings, I certainly have, where they say, well, look, we can get sued for this, but realistically, you know, here's what's going to happen, right? here's what the penalty will be, or here's what we'll settle for. And if it's two companies in a contract dispute where there's some legitimate misinterpretation, you make that business decision, right? You say, hey, why not try this, right? And you know, we're gonna roll the dice and maybe it works in our favor, maybe not. But when in doing so, you are actively hurting other people. I'll give another example. If you look at uh, rideshare companies, so let's take Uber. Yeah. Now, we have regulatory bodies in every state, 
right? We have in New York City where I am, we have the TLC, the Taxi and Limousine Commission. And the reason we have this commission is because many years ago, we had unscrupulous drivers. There was the famous, you land at LaGuardia and you get a cab ride to Manhattan via New Jersey. Right? And <laughs> you ended up with a $100 cab fare. Oh, God. You had issues of drivers who didn't know the city and would get lost. You had just all sorts of issues. And at some point, society said, you know what? Enough is enough. As much as we don't like more regulations, we don't have them. Clearly, we're going to have problems. So we, as a society, are going to step in. Here's a regulatory body, the TLC. And it's going to regulate and just make sure people aren't getting ripped off. We don't have drivers who are you know, criminals who put people at risk. And Uber came along, and this is one example. There are many, even outside of Rideshare, and many would say, you know, this sounds like a taxi service. They should be regulated. But they said, hmm, yeah, we're not going to bother. And certainly from their standpoint, this is what every startup does. They say, well, look, we're, we're so small. We don't have money to deal with regulations but let's just fly below the radar. And by the time we're big enough and they notice us, well, we'll have enough revenue that we can hire lawyers and we can fight it. And that's what they did. Now, unfortunately, along the way, we have seen a lot of fraud and misrepresentation. We have seen, unfortunately, people get assaulted, even sexually assaulted, because they brought in drivers who I'm sure would not have passed some of the local licensing background checks but it's because they said, well, this doesn't apply to us, right? We've seen Airbnb, that's getting around the hotel regulations in industries. Yeah. So there's a reason we have hotel regulations, right? It's to provide certain safety standards. So unfortunately, time and again, companies say, yeah, let's just skirt these laws and they are economically incentivized to do so. Now I do recognize if we said day one, Uber, you have to be regulated, when it's a company of 10 people, they say, well, that, that's it. We can hire people to actually build the company or we can hire 10 people to deal with regulations, but then we don't have a business. But there can be middle grounds, right? The TLC might be able to say, look, we're going to grant you a temporary uh, waiver or a temporary license to try this out, to pilot, to see where it goes. But you know, even under this, there's still gonna be certain standards. You do have to run a background check. So we can find a middle ground where I say, well, maybe you don't need a medallion, which is in New York, you need a, a special license to be able to have this. It costs a lot of money. Maybe we're gonna try giving you a temporary exception, but also there are some standards that you just, you can't fall below. And so we can find a balance. Unfortunately today, there's just, there's no incentive to even try. Yeah, yeah. Thank you for fleshing that out. I have one final question for you, Mark, and this is going to be the most serious and important one of the whole conversation, which is how many shot glasses do you have? I think <laughs> I am a little north, definitely north of 250. I think I might be north of 300 shot glasses these days. So tell, tell me the, the background on that one. Yeah. Uh, by the way, I'm at 400 pairs of cufflinks, so that has, that has outpaced it. The shot yeah, well. glasses... It actually came from uh, when I was on my high school senior class trip, we were down in Disney World. And one of my friends said, you know, I think we're gonna collect shot glasses because they are small, they are cheap, and they're ubiquitous. And I thought, oh, that, that's actually a good idea. That makes a lot of sense. I think I'm gonna start collecting them. 
And all, all of that is true, but if you want to start collecting them, two warnings. One, you need somewhere, a display cabinet that's enclosed. So otherwise living in a place like New York City, they all get dusty. Yeah. Two, anytime you move, it's a huge pain to have to wrap up a whole bunch of tiny pieces of glass. Yeah. But otherwise, it's a really great collector's item. Uh, that's too funny. So what's your favorite shot glass out of the 250, roughly? I would say it's probably the Hershey shot glass because my nickname is Hershey, has been for many years. So having, having that's a nice one. And that's from Hershey, Pennsylvania? From Hershey, Pennsylvania. Yep. That's great. Um, all right. Well, let me ask you a final question, which is uh, kind of like a, a quick one. If you could take out a billboard for free in Times Square, which I suppose is less populated now with COVID, but think a uh, very high traffic area, you could put up a billboard for, say, one week um, at no cost. Uh, it can be something from your book. It can be sort of a life advice or one quick message that you could share with everyone that would walk by. What would, what would you put on that billboard? It would most likely be some variation of the golden rule and something about we need to think about how our actions impact others. And whenever we do something, think about all the people impacted of it. If I could get that message across, I think the world would be a much better place. Yeah. Well said. Mark Hirschberg, author of The Career Toolkit. Where can people find you and get the book? People can find me on my website at thecareertoolkitbook.com. You can learn more about the book. You can get in touch with me. There's also a number of free resources, including a free app, doesn't collect any data, one thing I found when you read a book like this, you say, okay, this is some, some good advice. Here are some good tips. And then you forget a few weeks later. So what the app does, you don't even need to open it. It just pops up a little reminder each day. It's like a daily affirmation, but with some of the advice from the book. And that's going to help reinforce it. Or if you're about to go into a negotiation, a networking event, you can also open it up and flip through it to just do kind of a quick refresher. There's also a resources page where I have lists of some of the books that I cited in mine if you want to go deeper or resources to other things on the internet. There's also a download. The way to learn these skills is really doing it in a group, doing it with other people because you need to get different perspectives. And there's a free download on how to create such a group, either within your company or just in general, like say doing a meetup group. And yes, you can use my book as the basis for this, but you can use any other book. You can download that resource and you don't have to buy my book to use it. You can use other books, you can use podcasts like this one, but it's, it teaches you how to set up a group. So as you get great content, like you get on this show, you can get a richer understanding of it to further develop your skill set. That is excellent. Mark, thank you for what you do. Last question, what is next for you? Next for me, I am continuing to do some of my startup CTO work. But then as I continue with this book, I'm speaking with a bunch of companies, talking with a bunch of people, going on podcasts, and really seeing how people are going to respond to this. I know from teaching this for over 20 years that it's helpful, but I haven't done it at, at this level, kind of at this scale. So I want to see how this is helpful to people. And then what else I can do con to continue to help people on their journeys whether that's additional books or other things I can do 
to really help people achieve the most out of their careers. Well, Mark Hirschberg, thank you again for your time. Guys, go check out the Career Toolkit, Essential Skills for Success that no one taught you. Thanks again for coming on the show, Mark. Thank you for having me. This was great. Thank you for tuning in to another episode of The Brendan Burns Show. If it's your first time here, please make sure to subscribe on the Apple Podcasts app or in Spotify. Also, please leave us a rating or written review. This helps others learn about the show and spread the word to new and more people. Thanks again for listening and have a great day.